0: Nehemiah is considered a, a book of history in the Old Testament. And you'll see as we go that that very much is the case. It's, it takes place um, in the 425 to 440 B.C. era. And the story starts with Nehemiah in the Persian city of Susa. You can read these things. Dad. you'll read those things to your kids this week. Nehemiah, we find out at the very end of chapter 1. Had a role in the government in Persia, in Susa, and he was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Okay, so just kids, adults, people listening, remember, this is not a book of fables or stories. Remember, we learned this in 1 Peter, 1st 2nd Peter. These are true facts, so you can look up King Artaxerxes in world history, and he's a person. These people are real people. In real history, Nehemiah he served. We see at the very end of chapter one. You can read those words. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Now being a cupbearer to the king sounds to us like this weird, goofy job that the king might give to somebody he doesn't really like a whole lot. The cupbearer would basically their primary task, at least, was sampling the the food and drink that the f- king would be eating, and that way if it was poisoned, guess what? The cupbearer would die and not the king. <clears throat> and so, if you think about that, though, you got to think, actually, Nehemiah, as the cupbearer, he actually had to be pretty trusted by the king, did he not? So that he would be honest and uh, that the king, I mean, he was trusting him with his life to some degree. And so, Nehemiah, on some level, would have been a, a fairly respected person In that area, um, as a Persian official, he had some degree of influence and privilege, as we'll see here as it plays out in the story. But in the 20th year of the rule of King Artaxerxes, he gets a visit from his brother Hanani and some other guys, and they're coming from Judah. And you can see this really quick in the first few verses. And he starts asking them some questions in verse 2. And he's asking them how things are going back home in Jerusalem and Judah, what's going on, how how is this stuff uh, happening. And they tell him in verse 3, it's not good. Things back home are not good at all. Um, in fact, they use the, the term, they say that they are in great trouble and shame. The walls of the city are broken down, the gates have been burned and destroyed. And this is a big problem. Now the walls being uh, broken down are an, kind of an obvious problem because it's a security issue, right? It's a safety issue for the people who live in the city. If there's no walls, then there's no protection from the outside forces that might want to harm them. What's, what, would, what would those neighboring people groups do? I mean, they could easily just walk through and take advantage of the people if there were no walls or, or anything to protect them. So if, if you remember, back a couple hundred years before all of this happened, in around 605, 580 BC in that area, King Nebuchadnezzar came and attacked and broke those walls down. Okay? These attacks, the, in these attacks, the city was really laid to waste. The walls were destroyed. Uh, the gates, that's when they were broken down. The city was just ransacked. And that's where a bunch of people were taken captives back to Babylon. All right, but within now a hundred years, the Persians overthrew the Babylonians, and they were at the time in the known world. They were kind of the world power. That's that's where we're at in the timeline of history. Surprisingly, though, the Persians gave the Jews some amount of freedom to go back home and begin to rebuild. Just go back to them. they're still under Persian rule, don't forget, but they could go back and rebuild, and so many of them went back. Uh Ezra, the book of Ezra that precedes Nehemiah, in fact, uh read this week. A lot of people consider Ezra and Nehemiah one big book in the Old Testament. It was just separated kind of for ease of study and things. Um, but Ezra was around the same time, as was a contemporary of Nehemiah. And so you'll see Ezra. Ezra shows up in the book of Nehemiah, as does Zerubbabel who was kind of the governor in that time. He's Zerubbabel is more in uh, the book of Ezra. But Ezra was a priest. He was a scribe that led the people back to a right understanding of God, to a desire and a hunger for the word of God. And he helped restore really true worship in the temple. So Ezra, the book of Ezra kind of focuses on the rebuilding of the temple. In Jerusalem. Nehemiah focuses more on rebuilding of the walls and the gates, okay? Zerubbabel, I mentioned, who was the governor. He was the leader of Israel in those days, and he helped with the rebuilding of the temple, that sort of thing. Um, But think back to the walls of the city. The walls of a city, in biblical times especially, really reflected the health and strength of the people inside of it. So no walls around the city, or they're in shambles, no threat, no problem. But also for the people inside, no security. And so the, the people from the outside are looking in, they don't really have too much of a problem with the Jews because they're just a podunk little people who don't pose a threat to anybody. And that's how it's been for years. Now, for whatever reason, the people were not motivated to take up the task of building the wall again. This is what Nehemiah comes to do. But if the walls of the city are strong and secure, then that would make their enemies nervous. And we'll see that kind of situation play out with guys like Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem. These are, these are enemies of God, enemies of the Jews. And they come to try and disrupt the work and keep God's people from succeeding in rebuilding the walls. So the walls are in bad shape. The gates are broken down and burned. And that, the gates being broken, it's similar to the walls in the sense of that there's no security there. You can't, you can enter and leave at any point. But there's kind of a deeper meaning when it comes to the gates, I think. They were more than just a place where you enter and leave a city. If you think about Old Testament, the significance of the gates, let me just help us remember some of those significances. Okay? Business transactions were conducted at the gates of the city. Legal issues were discussed and decided on, kind of like a courtroom that was done at the gates of the city. Public announcements were made there at the city gates as well. Victorious kings, armies would ride through those gates declaring victory. Plans were made at the gates. We see good plans being made at the gates. David does this when he gives instructions. He rallies the troops to go into battle. He tells them where they're going, what they're doing. He does that at the gates. But we also see evil plans made at the gates. This was a place where you came up with a strategy. Evil plans, like uh, if you remember in the book of Esther, two guys were, were plotting against King Ahasuerus, and Mordecai heard their plan, They were at the gates of the city making this evil plan. Interestingly, in that story, in Esther, it's the same gates that we're talking about. They were at the gate. They were in the city of Susa at the gates. So the the city gate was central to community action. Now, there's a lot of correlations that we could make here with like a city center or a VFW hall or something like that. But this is where the hub of activity for the community was. It was at the gates. So... If somebody controlled the gates of the city, even if the walls were intact, if you controlled the gates of the city, you in essence controlled the people that lived in it. And the fact that Jerusalem's city gates were burned and destroyed was a source of mocking to their neighbors. They would scoff at them. They would laugh and point and they didn't want them to rebuild. Don't get me wrong, but they also enjoyed being able to poke fun at them for it. Now, this is where I think the gates hold more meaning than the walls in this sense. If we fast forward to Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 verse 18, he says when talking about the church, Big C, God's people, he says that the gates of hell cannot overcome it. All the, all the plans and evil schemes of the enemy, all the lies, all the flaming darts of the evil one, None of these things will be able to overcome what God is building. So the gates were a place where rulers met and counsel was given. So Jesus is saying in Matthew 16 that all the evil plans of Satan himself would never defeat God's church. Gates were important. But they wouldn't just not destroy the church. They wouldn't not overcome the church because the church itself is so strong. Why? Because the church has a strong redeemer. Because the church has has an invincible savior. That's why the gates of hell cannot overcome it. Because of Jesus. Because of the cornerstone. So Nehemiah, he's in Persia, city of Susa. Some of his family and friends, they come. He gets this report. It's not good. He hears about the walls and the gates and the problems there and the mockery that's made of Jerusalem. And he immediately starts to worry, doesn't he? No. He doesn't. He, he immediately starts to complain about his hometown. He doesn't do it. Not at all. Look at verse 4. Look at how he responds. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is Lesson number one here in Nehemiah for us. As soon as he heard these words, he wept and mourned and fasted and prayed. His prayer of one is one of recognition of who God is. If you read through that prayer, dads, as you read through that with your kids this week, you'll see that it's a recognition of who God is. It's a confession of sin and it's request for favor before the king. We'll talk more about this next Week in detail, but we've got to say something about this today. I would consider verse four really one of the key verses for the whole book, because it sets Nehemiah on the path that would shape the future for the people of God. Again, he doesn't wring his hands in worry when he hears. He prays. May that not be a last resort for us as God's people, but a first method of attack and fixing the problem is that we pray. At this point in Jewish history, I think it's important to see there's not a king really here, predominantly on display. There's not really a prophet that's doing a lot behind the scenes. There is not really a strong military leader even. What did the people need? At this point in Israel's history, the people needed a prayer-focused planner and worker, and God provided Nehemiah. He received permission from the king, incredibly in the next chapter, and he returns to Jerusalem to rebuild it with the king's blessing. In fact, the king loads him up with stuff. He tells him to take what he needs. This shows favor that the king and the queen had for Nehemiah. But that like I said, that's not all. He not only had the authority to go and, re- and start the rebuilding, but they also gave him permission to travel freely between among all the lands, it was all Persia, world power at the time. He had, so he had a passport. He got permission to go. And they gave him all of the stuff that he would need. He asked for it, and they, they said, sure, take it. All the lumber, all the materials to rebuild this stuff. The king said, take it and go. Well, this, this is incredible. And don't, don't think that it's not a result of his prayer. Because he prayed for this, for favor before the king. Again, as we've said already this morning in our time together, God answers prayers, brothers and sisters. Nehemiah, just kind of an overview here of the whole book. He, he, he then takes stock of the situation. He, he surveys it. He walks around. He gets a plan together. And then he gets people involved. We'll see that he starts calling out families. You take that area. You do this. and he, he, So he makes a plan. He gets people involved and you know what they do it in record time i'm not going to tell you how how many days it took but it says it specifically if you know the story you can you feel free to read ahead but it's a short time in comparison to the wall building pro- project in that process though we've already mentioned a couple of the the bad guys in the story they israel faces persecution People are mocking them, jeering them. In fact, they're luring Nehemiah to his death at times. Trying to. So Nehemiah continues the work. He leads the people in repenting of sin and returning to God. He helps establish a formal covenant of the people before God of obedience. He cleanses the temple from disobedient and evil priests, and he restores proper worship in the process. When when we kind of evaluate what to preach on here on Sunday mornings, what we study uh, in our worship, main worship gathering, we want to be sure that we consider the needs of our own church body, but also the, the effect or the state of the world around us. And so as we find ourselves in 2023 in the state, in the world in which we are in, we felt that it was helpful to look at the story of Nehemiah. And just for your own Future uh, study purposes, we're going to go from Nehemiah. Whenever we finish here, we're going to move into the book of Acts. And I think there's a connection that we'll talk about when we get closer to that time. But here, Nehemiah makes sense to study in our current situation, I think, for for three reasons. Number one is this. We as Christians need to learn to pray more fervently. Those are your blanks. Number, number one, we as Christians need to pray more fervently. As soon as Nehemiah heard that there was a problem, he prayed. But he didn't just pray, he fasted, he wept, he mourned. For days, it says. Now, I'm not suggesting we do that over everything, but there are some things we probably ought to do that over. We need to pray more fervently. Look at chapter 2, verse 4 with me. Even when he's in the middle of making this appeal to the king, the king of the whole known world at the time, he stops to pray. Look at verse 4. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So, and then there's a pause. So I prayed to the God of heaven. So he's in the middle of this conversation with the king, the most powerful man in the, on the planet at the time, and he stops to pray in the middle of that conversation. That's incredible. May 2023 be the year where it becomes our first inclination to pray in times of trouble, not the last resort. Number two, another reason why it makes sense to look at Nehemiah's story here. Number two, we as Christians need to learn to work more intentionally. We need to learn to work more intentionally. Look at chapter 2, verse 17 and 18 with me. Then I said to them, So he's back in Jerusalem. I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. He's saying so that we might not be laughed at anymore. Verse 18, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also for the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, here's their response. When Nehemiah says, guys, look around you. We need to get to work here. We need to build. Here's what the people said. Let's rise up and build. Okay, let's do it. It's pretty simple, right? Let's rise up and build. And then look, and it says, so... They strengthen their hands for the good work. Now we can look around at what's going on around us, and it might very well seem like the walls are crumbling. Things seem to be falling apart to some degree, and it may be easy to go on like that, despairing, being discouraged. That's probably what the people here were experiencing. They'd been years, they'd been living in Jerusalem, but no effort to rebuild the walls. And now Nehemiah, God uses him to come and say, guys, wake up, look around you. There's work to be done. And the people's response was not rejection of that. It was not, well, could we do it the easy way? It wasn't any of these things. It was, let's rise up and do it. Let's do it. God used Nehemiah to light a fire under his people. And when the plan was all outlined, they were ready to do the work that they needed. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. There's some success here. There's We're in the middle of the work in chapter 4, and there's opposition now. Chapter 4, verse 6. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. I like that phrase. For the people had a mind to work. Brothers and sisters, there is work to do in 2023 concerning the kingdom of God. Are you ready to rise up and build? Are you ready to have a mind to work? Number three. We as Christians need to be more patient and hope more expectantly. Notice how in the story so far that we know of, Nehemiah, he, he's never went ahead of the Lord. He's never presumed anything to be done. You, you see people in the Old Testament get in pretty big trouble for presuming things. They're offering fire and incense when they shouldn't, or they're touching things when they shouldn't going places they shouldn't, it's a bad deal. Nehemiah doesn't do that. His first step is he prays. He stops and he prays. Even in the middle of conversations, he stops and he prays. He doesn't go before the Lord's will. He fasts, he prays, he plans, he works hard, he leads well, and ultimately he trusts God with it all. He never went on the defensive against those who opposed him. Look at in chapter four, verse 14. Remember there's, there's, opposition here he's speaking to the people about the opposition in verse 14 and and i looked and rose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the the rest of the people do not be afraid of them remember the lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers your sons your daughters your wives and your homes now there's this is very clear that nehemiah prepared and equipped the people to defend themselves, right? In fact, we'll see that he gave them weapons of attack. And so that's where the idea of a sword and a trowel, they're building the wall, but they're also protecting what God has given them. Those things work together. We'll see that, but it wasn't so that they would mount an attack against the enemies. That was never part of the plan. Nehemiah encouraged people to defend themselves, but they never... They never went on the offensive. And even when opposition happened close to home, he trusted the Lord with it all. He trusted God to deal with things. And he reminded the people of these things in joyful hope, saying, remember the Lord. Remember how great and awesome he is. Don't be afraid. I'd echo the same encouragement to you all in 2023. Though the walls may seem to be crumbling in some regard, remember the Lord. Remember how great and awesome he is. Don't be afraid. Nehemiah recognized the power of God and his blessing, the blessing of his word even. And he reminded the people of these things. Be reminded of it today. Now, while there's no explicit picture of Jesus in Nehemiah, I do think that we see some foreshadowing. So stay with me here. Think about chapter 1 in Nehemiah. Nehemiah prays fervently for the people of God for his people. In fact, he intercedes on their behalf for the king. He says, my people are hurting. Can I go? I need to go to them. And the king sends him. Nehemiah intercedes for his people a lot like Jesus does in John chapter 17, where he intercedes for the people of God. We see at the end, chapter 13, we see Nehemiah to some degree cleansing the temple of these evil priests and their despicable practices. He drives away those who do not fear the Lord an awful lot like Jesus does in the temple in Matthew 21. We also see Nehemiah weeping over the condition of Jerusalem. Yes, about the walls and about the gates, but certainly he understood the deeper spiritual meaning behind these things and he wept Jesus, in Matthew 23, weeps over the spiritual condition of Jerusalem. As we study through this historical book of Nehemiah together in the coming months, I hope and I pray that God will use his word to move us to repentance, to returning back to him and to proper ways of worship and to, in fact, revival and I would say that the, the people here in this book experience a sort of revival to some degree. Ezra comes, if you look at Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra comes to read the books of the law. Now, if you've read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these books of the law, there's some exciting things in there, but you know what the people did. It says that when Ezra got up and they made him a little platform to stand on, and he would get up and read the book of the law, and as he stood up to read, the people stood up. And they stood up all day, and they listened. So Paul, Romans eight's a long chapter. Brother, it's nothing like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And we're not standing outside in the sun listening to the word. But this is this is what they did. Ezra comes and he reads the books of the law to the people all day long. And as, the, as he read, the people would lift up their hands and they'd say, Amen. Amen. Which means, yes, we agree. Then if you look at chapter 8, verse 6, it shows another aspect of their response. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They recognized the great God. And as they heard his word being read to them, they responded properly. Revival, I think renewal was sweeping through their hearts at that point. But notice that revival and renewal, it didn't come as a result of, like, some new program that Nehemiah rolled out. It didn't come at, as a result of even a bunch of miracles being worked for the people. That had happened in their history, and that would happen in Christ again. But that's not what we'll call revival here. Look at chapter 8, verses 5 through 12. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. And then they they said, Amen, Amen. They lifted their hands. They bowed their faces to the ground. Verse 7 talks about some of the people that were there with him. And then verse 8 says that they read from the book the law of God clearly. And they gave the sense that the people understood the reading. So they expounded on the word of God. And Nehemiah, the governor, and Ezra... The priest and scribe, verse 9 says, And the Levites who taught the people said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So not only did they agree with what was being read, they raised their hands in agreement. Then they bowed their faces before the great God, and they wept as it was read. They understood The Word of God. That was the step, that was step one to revival. They heard and understood the Word of God. Look at chapter nine. I'm not going to read this all because it really involves pretty well the whole chapter. You can see the heading in your Bible. The one in mine says, the people of Israel confess their sins. So they hear the book of the law, books of the law being read. They weep, they mourn, and then the leaders say, hang on a second, guys. Don't weep or mourn. Let's approach this the right way. And they confess their sins. Chapter 9, it says they confess and repent of their sins. So step one to revival is hearing and understanding the word of God. Step two is confessing and repenting of sin. And these aren't really steps to revival. I don't mean to put it that way. I'm just saying this is what we see in the book of Nehemiah. We see renewal rippling through their hearts, and this is how. Look at chapter 9, verse 38, through really the end of 10. Specifically the beginning of 10, look at this. They made a covenant, and the beginning of chapter 10 is just all the names of the people and families who signed the covenant, who agreed with Nehemiah, with Ezra, before the Lord, to confess and repent of their sin and then to obey God properly. And so we see the people hearing and understanding the word of God. We see the people confessing and repenting of sin. And then we see the people covenanting together to obey God better, to live differently. And so this is the last blank on your sheets this morning. Revival came as a result of understanding the word of God, of repenting of sin and of covenanting together to live differently. If you've heard what was said today and you don't quite understand it, I hope that you'll start the way that Nehemiah started. Pray. Ask God, what is it that you want me to understand from this? Pray and ask the Lord for his favor in that, in understanding His Word. Pray and ask the Lord for the gift of a humble heart to receive what His Word says. I would ask that for all of us. As believers here this morning, we want to turn our attention to the gift of the Lord's table, of the Lord's Supper, with those here who we've covenanted together with to live differently. And that's you and I, Christian. Now you may not have legit, like literally signed a covenant when you were saved or when you became a member of this church, but I hope you understand that it involves way more than just your signature. Covenanting together as a part of the church means that you live life, are accountable to, and encourage and serve in the body of Christ here. And so we've covenanted together to live differently. And as so, may we approach this time where we reflect on the sacrifice of Christ with humility. Perhaps we need to respond to this time in our service the way that the people in Nehemiah's day responded. That we, that we agree with the truth. That we say yes, amen. And that we fall on our faces and repent of our sin. That we confess it to those who we need to confess it to. And that we covenant again together. To live differently. May we understand the greatness of what we celebrate at the Lord's table together. We celebrate not only uh, the death of Christ, but also we look back to his resurrection.